Amen. You may be seated. As you are sitting down, let me invite you to take up your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 today. If you are visiting with us today, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I serve as the lead pastor here at FAC, and it would be a great privilege to meet you after service if you have a few minutes to spare. Uh, Please don't uh, hesitate to make yourself known. Uh, If you were here with us last week, you know that we shared the outcome of our envisioning uh, process here at FAC. Uh, Just a reminder to you as we continue to walk through this that a vision uh, for any church is um, way more broad and way more organic than any kind of formulated set of uh, words, or it's more than just a short phrase, a collection of words on a page. Um, yet we do see the value in having a concise statement to help us summarize uh, who we are, what we're here for, uh, what we want to accomplish, um, what we envision accomplishing here. Uh, for those of you who are not with us, I'll, sh- I'll share again uh, that our vision in a short summarized way is, here at FAC is to build, equip, and mobilize followers of Jesus so that all nations may know him to God's glory. Um, last week, we looked at the biblical support for uh, what it means to build followers of Jesus. And uh, here this week, we turn our attention once again uh, to God's word uh, as our authority and explore what it means to equip followers of Jesus. And so for that, we read from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I invite you to please follow along uh, with me as I read. Starting in verse 1, this is what Paul the Apostle writes. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ." from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Would you pray with me? And Father, we commit this uh, time to you and ask that your spirit would engage our minds as we examine this text this morning. 
We confess that these words are more than just words, that they are breathed out by you. While they were written by human hands, we believe that you inspired these words, you told them what to say, and that they are your very own words. Yet, Father, we need your help and assistance in discerning your voice. So as you inspired these words, would you now illuminate them to us? Would you bring to light their meaning so that we may see the glory of your ways? It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. At the college that I attended, it was a requirement as a part of freshman orientation for every single student to participate in a local service uh, project that week of freshman orientation put on by a nonprofit organization. It was called uh, Hammer and Nails. Um, And so during my first week uh, at college, a group of students and I were transported to a work site uh, where we were going to help uh, with repairs to a house. Um, now, I've never been too good with tools of any kind. Uh, I, I know what I'm good at, and building projects are not one of them. And so you can imagine my face at 18 years old when I arrive at a work site, and before I even know what I was tasked with, um, some guy hands me a power drill. <laughs> And I look at the guy dead in the eye and I said, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Uh, Do do you realize who you've just handed this to? And and he put me at ease by ensuring that he would teach me how to use the tool and he would show me exactly what to do. And sure enough, I was able to accomplish the task uh, of the day and I didn't really have anything to worry about. Um, in, In a similar fashion, all followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, all of us, are involved in a building project. Um, But what we discovered from last week is that this building project isn't physical in nature, but rather spiritual. As a church, we are not building physical buildings. Um, We are not even building an organization, and we are not building structures, and we are not building ministries, we are not building events, we are not building programs, we are building People. That is the building project. Under God's sovereignty, under his guidance and empowerment, we are participating in the building of his kingdom people so that they may collectively become more like Jesus. However, Paul here in Ephesians emphasizes a critical step. He spotlights, if you will, a very important step in the building process. And that is this concept, this idea of equipping the saints. Uh, And so we're going to look at it this morning. We're going to walk through it verse by verse, starting in verse 1. Let's uh, walk through the passage together. Um, Starting in verse 1, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Uh, Some context here. Paul writes this in response to something that has already been written. Whenever you see that word, therefore, in Scripture, it's referencing an idea or or some kind of content that has come prior. Uh, And in the case of this letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4 actually serves as a turning point in Paul's letter. You, You see this on several occasions with Paul. Um, If you were to go back and read the first three chapters of Ephesians, what you would find are some of the most rich 
descriptions of God's salvation plan. Paul goes to great lengths to describe and explain God's marvelous involvement in humanity to redeem it and to reconcile it to himself. Um, Paul chronicles back in chapter 2 how we were dead in our trespasses and our sin, and we walked our own way in life according to how we felt. Our own sinful flesh served as our master, and as a result, Paul says, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. But God, two of the most powerful words in all of Scripture, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when, Paul writes, we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, Paul writes. How marvelous, how wonderful. What a glorious message. What a glorious thing to contemplate, the richness of salvation. And so when Paul writes about the calling here in verse 1, to which you have been called, that is the call that he's talking about. And it's always a good reminder to us, it's good to remind ourselves that we are called. If you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called. It's a good reminder that Christ was the initiator of our call, not us, that he is the one that called us. That's what we are as a church, right? The word used for church in scripture, ecclesia, it literally means called out ones. So, so we are not a church just by virtue of the fact that we come into a building that we've defined as a church building. We are a church because we are a group of people who have been called out. We are called out ones. That is what makes us the church. It's, it's the called out ones who have come to this understanding that by God's grace, we've come to the understanding by God's grace that I once resided in the kingdom of darkness. Yet God took the initiative to pursue me in my darkness and called me out of the darkness. And I heard his voice and I recognized his voice because I belonged to him. And I responded to his voice. I turned to him and then he grabbed me by the hand and ushered me out of the kingdom of darkness and brought me into, by his power and his power alone, into the kingdom of light into life. And Paul here in verse 1 urges the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, of, of the calling to which you have been called. Now to say that something is worthy in comparison to something else is, is to say that it has a worth or a value equal to the other thing. It's like a scale, if you will, a balancing scale, right? If, if I were to enter into a sporting event and I would call my opponent as a worthy opponent, I, I would be saying that his skill set matches my own, that, that, that his skill set is of equal value to what I bring to the table. An employee worthy of her hire is one whose work matches the wages that she is given. And so what Paul is saying is that the, the way we live our life should reflect 
our calling. One author writes that we should value God's love enough to be shaped by it, to, to, to change. And then once again, that God meets you right where you are, but does not anticipate to leave you there. He wants to shape you. He wants to transform you. Paul's concern is that our lives would be shaped by God's salvation. And what we see here in this first verse is that obedience is always a response to God's grace. That once again, God is the one who takes the initiative. God is the one who makes the first move. God acts and we respond. And so with this, we must understand that this is not rules, right? Or it is not obligation that motivate any kind of moral behavior. It is not obligation or rules that motivate any kind of action, any kind of service. What it is that motivates us is the awareness of God. This is an awareness of who he is, right? Healthy doctrine produces healthy conduct, Healthy doctrine produces healthy conduct. Paul has taken the first three chapters of this book to explain solid doctrine, solid theology, and that then should motivate us, should spur us on to action. And so as a side note of our time today, let me remind us that theology, right, which is the study of God, who he is and what he does, is not a study which is exclusive to seminaries and universities. Rather, it is a staple of the church. The theology, doctrine, is not reserved for a group of spiritual eggheads, if you will, but it is for all believers, all of the called out ones, because solid doctrine produces healthy conduct. Now, now, a natural question to ask in response to verse 1 is, is Paul, how are we to walk in a manner worthy of our calling? How does one do that? And, and Paul actually takes the rest of Ephesians to, to, to ex- explain that and to describe that. But the immediate example that he gives is that we are to walk in unity with each other. To, we are to walk as one. Because once again, walking in unity is but a, a reflection of who we are in Christ. Notice in verse 3, that he says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's not something that needs to be established because it's something that already exists. To to, to maintain the unity of the Spirit is really to act in a way that reflects our nature uh, as as a body of believers, the nature of our unity, To, to walk in a way which resembles the unity that has already been established. And Paul reminds us that our unity has theological roots. It has a divine origin. He he tells us what that unity is that we have. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father uh, of all who is over all and through all and in all. We, We see that there really is no such thing as an individual faith. To be uninvolved and disengaged and only concerned with my own individual walk with Christ, my personal walk with Christ, actually does a great disservice to us because Christianity is a shared faith. And what we learn from this passage is that whatever individuality, whatever individuality and uniqueness that does exist 
uh, in the one body is actually for the body. It's for the unity of the body as a whole. And Paul continues on to this end, right? He transitions in verse 7. He speaks a lot about unity, but then he wants to to, to focus on, on the rich diversity within the church. That yes, there is unity, but there is also diversity, right? That the, yes, there is only one body, one faith, one family, one God, one spirit. But this is not to say that every believer is an exact carbon copy of one another. The, the, the church is beautifully diverse. Christian unity is actually enriched by our diversity. Christian unity is more glorious because we aren't carbon copies of each other, because we are diverse. It's, it's all the more beautiful because of the diversity as individuals. And the diversity, the uniqueness that Paul gets at in this passage is a specific kind of diversity. It's not a diversity in culture, although that exists within the church. It is not a diversity of personalities, although that exists in the church. It is not a diversity of background. Uh, but Paul's focus here is the diversity in roles that we play in accordance with Jesus' grace toward us, that we have different assignments, if you will, in God's kingdom. And Paul goes on to speak specifically about a few of these assignments. In verse 7, before we get there, Paul writes, but grace, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul uses the word grace here not uh, not in reference to the type of grace that we experience at salvation, but instead to the type of grace that sustains us as believers, to to the type of grace that is offered to us in walking in a manner worthy of our calling. It is a grace for service. It is a grace for ministry. It is a grace for our work that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And with this, there's a helpful reminder that God's grace extends far beyond and past the point of salvation. That his grace is not something that we experience exclusively at the cross, but it is actually something that we experience every single new day. That each of us had a portion of grace when we opened up our eyes this morning. God provides us with grace in order to accomplish the work that he has charted us to accomplish. Right, Just as he provides all of the necessary resources outside of us to save us from our sin, to save us from darkness, he also provides all of the necessary resources to continue in his love. We have everything that we need to do what God has called us to do because of his grace. And so we see here that God's grace is not just for the unbeliever to come to know him. But God's grace is also for the believer daily. We continue to walk in his grace. And God's grace manifests itself in one example in this passage through the distribution of gifts. It's here in verse 8 where Paul shares a reference from Psalm 68, 18. What he's doing is laying, once again, the theological groundwork for what he's about to say in application. And he turns to uh, Psalm 68 and then parenthetically describes it in relation to Christ. 
in verse 9. Uh, psalm 68, it's a psalm of triumph. It's a psalm of victory, and it gives this picture of this conquering king. If you were to read the whole psalm, it's this conquering king who has overcome a country's enemy and, and then has ascended to the throne. And as a result, the conquering king has uh, received gifts. In the original psalm, it actually uh, says that he receives gifts. He receives the spoils of war, if you will. In that culture, the conquerors would take the spoils of war that they received from their enemy and they would actually distribute it and give it out and give it away to their own people. And Paul here then applies this psalm to Jesus in verse 9 and he explains how Jesus descended to the earth at the incarnation. He became human. He became one of us. That was his descent and he submitted himself to to death, even death on a cross as Paul would write in Philippians 2 and then was resurrected from the dead. And as a result, God the Father exalted Jesus to the highest uh, place. To, 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 the, to the right hand, to the highest throne. Jesus ascended in glory. And as a part of such exaltation, this ascension, having defeated our enemies at the cross, he is now in a position at which he dispenses gifts to his people. He is giving gifts. Now, when you think about gifts in the, in the Bible, sometimes we are too narrow in our understanding of gifts. Our, our minds immediately are tempted to think about the so-called spiritual gifts that are um, listed in 1 Corinthians and Roman, which actually limits our understanding here. Um, believe it or not, throughout the New Testament, there are at least six different categories, according to one commentator, about the types of gifts that God gives us. And, and so when we think about God's gifting, we actually need to broaden our minds a little bit. That's, his gifts come in many different shapes and many different sizes in many different forms. In this passage, in this context, the gifts that Jesus gives us are particular roles within the church. And, and Paul goes on to list four of them here in verse 11. Uh, Verse 11 literally reads, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as shepherds and teachers. Uh, Let's walk through these a little bit just to give you some background. The title apostle uh, here, the, the term for apostle, the title apostle is actually used three different ways throughout scripture. Um, we won't get into all three ways, but um, Paul most likely in this context is talking about the uh, official apostles who laid the foundation of the church because he's referenced them a couple of different times through uh, the, the first three chapters. Um, there were at least 14 formal apostles, capital A apostles, if you will, possibly even 15 or 16. Um, the ones that we know for a fact were apostles were the 12 disciples, uh, Paul himself and James, the brother of, of Jesus. Um, once again, there may have been one or two others. Um, these were men who were personally chosen by Jesus, who personally were eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus and authorized by Jesus and sent by Jesus into the world. That is who Paul is talking about, as some he gave the church apostles. Similarly to the apostles, um, formal prophets that Paul references here were a distinct role for that time. Um, a good definition of a prophet is given by uh, the late theologian John Stott. 
Stott says that a prophet was a person who stood in the counsel of God, who heard and even saw his word, and, and who in consequence spoke from the mouth of the Lord and spoke his word faithfully. In other words, Stott writes, a prophet was a mouthpiece or a spokesman of God, a vehicle of his direct revelation. Uh, Paul talks about the apostles and the, prophet, and the prophets much and how they actually laid the foundation uh, of, of the church. This is the role that he is talking about. These men were, were gifts uh, to the church because of their role, right? Um, then there are evangelists. Simply put, those uh, are people who are gifted, really, of making the gospel of Jesus plain and relevant to those who do not believe. Uh, they just possess a very supernatural, special ability to communicate the gospel effectively. Um, and then finally, uh, the, the one that you will most likely be familiar with is the shepherd. Uh, in our context, we use the title pastor. It's a pastor. The title pastor literally means shepherd. That's where we get the word for, for pastor is, is shepherd. It's a herdsman. Um, this is someone who oversees a flock tenderly cares for a flock, assertively protects the flock, and most importantly, feeds the flock. That's actually why Paul lumps these last two roles together. Um, You you, you say, I, I see five things here. There's really only four because pastor and teacher are meant to be taken together. Paul actually removes an article intentionally because he's saying the pastor is the teacher. The pastor and the teacher is one role. The primary way that a shepherd tends to a flock is to feed the flock. Pastors feed the flock, feed believers that have been entrusted to his care through the teaching of God's word. That is the main role. The primary role of the pastor is to teach God's word. That is what the pastor should spend most of his time on. That is the top priority on the pastor's job description, is to teach God's word. And you'll notice that all four of these roles actually deal, they all are uh, involved with the ministry of God's word. That's why we place such an, an emphasis, such a value on Scripture. Right, Because if we confess these words to be the very words that God spoke into existence, and we confess that these words reveal who God is, and reveal what God is doing in history, and reveal our involvement in his work, then we know that we don't need to look anywhere else for direction. That everything we need to function within and under God's sovereign plan is right here within these Pages. There are no other tools that we need. There is no add-ons, if you will, that we need other than God's very word. Which is, which is why we spend so much time in here and why we spend so much time talking about it and looking into it and digging deep into it. This, this is why God had these specific roles in place. Paul is very clear what role these men play. These roles are gifts to the church. And for what purpose? Verse 12. Take a look at it. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That, that, that is the purpose of, of God's words. That is the purpose of these roles, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It, it's important to note here that whenever Scripture uses the term saints, let's not be confused. The term saints in Scripture is always a reference to all believers. The term for saint is not a designation for a specific group of what some would consider exceptional Christians. No, if you are a believer, you are a saint, according to Paul. When Paul writes that these roles equip the saints, he is saying that they equip, they prepare, if you will, believers. Through the teaching and proclamation of God's word, they are equipping believers. They are preparing believers. And whenever you equip someone, it is a charge to go and do something. When I was in middle school, I played football for a couple of years, and my coaches equipped me. At the first day of practice, they literally gave me equipment. They gave me a helmet, and they gave me pads. And they equipped me with the assumption that at some point I was going to practically use what they had equipped me with. I wasn't going to take their equipment and then go sit in the stands, right? I, 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 no, I was going to take their equipment and I was going to go run a play on the field. And I would be very thankful in that moment for how they equipped me because had they not equipped me and then I ran out and tried to run a play without any equipment, I would be in deep trouble. And so these roles within the church, they're gifts to the church and that God uses them to prepare believers. And what are believers prepared for? According to Paul in verse 12, are they prepared to go out and play football? Are they prepared to go run a class? Are they prepared? What are they being prepared to do? Don't miss this. They are being prepared for the work of ministry. The, the word, the literal word for ministry is service. One commentator writes that this is actually a watershed text for the doctrine of the local church, right? This verse should radically change our understanding of how ministry plays out in the local church context. Paul rightfully assumes and expects that if you are a believer, then you are called to a life of ministry, a life of service. You don't have a choice in the matter, right? Just as Christ gave his life, poured out his life for the benefit of others, we as believers are actually called to follow suit and practically pour out our lives for the betterment of others to God's glory. And so if you are a believer here this morning, the question is not whether I am called to ministry because you are. The only question is where am I called? Lord, where am I called? Where would you have me pour out my life? What, what souls would you have me pour out my life for? If, if you are not serving in some capacity, whether formal or informally, you are neglecting God call, God's call on your life as a believer. And you are not walking in a manner worthy to the calling to which you have been called. Now, this will be an earth-shattering concept for some because not only does it change our understanding as believers 
uh, doesn't, not only changes our understanding of who we are as believers, but it also changes uh, our understanding uh, of, of pastors, of church leaders. From this verse, we see that ministry, once again, is not exclusive to pastors. The believers as a whole are the primary ones who do ministry. One pastor jokes with his congregation that when he became a pastor, uh, he actually left the ministry because his job is now to prepare and equip others to do the ministry. So don't get me wrong. Yes, we can call what pastors do ministry, but their service in preaching the word is just one part of a much greater plan, of a much grander plan. There is so much ministry to be done, and God's expectation is that the lion's share of ministry is not to be done by the individual pastor, but by the collective body of individual believers. Right? There's no reason why the pastor has to do all of the hospital visits, and there's no reason the pastor has to lead all of the prayer groups or small groups. There's no reason the pastor has to conduct all the counseling. To, to be honest with you, I have very little empathy. It's a character flaw. You don't want me to do your counseling. <laughs> Pastors do not need to address all the social problems of society or provide all the care to people in distress. Pastors do not need to lead all of the ministries or outreach efforts. And to expect them to would be an impossible burden. And it's an unbiblical burden. Now let me provide clarity that the pastor's role, once again, is not exclusively preaching, but it is primarily preaching. The pastor's role does go beyond just preaching, but most of his week should be given over to the preaching of God's word. It's when we flip that, and expect the pastor to spend most of his time on other responsibilities when we actually find ourselves in trouble as a church. Because such a mindset robs the church in two ways. It's actually a dual trap. Because if the pastor is the one who hoards all the ministry, right, it keeps the saints from doing the work of the ministry, which should not be so. And second, it if the pastor is the one who hoards all the ministry, is doing all the ministry, it actually keeps the pastor away from doing the specific ministry of God's word uh, to which he was called to, which should not be so. Right? A pastor cannot devote his limited time and energy to the preaching of God's word if his limited time and energy is being used up serving in an area that someone else should be serving in and is, and is called to. And so in our vision statement, when we say that we want to equip followers of Jesus. It means that we function with the biblical understanding that our church is responsible, right, for providing all of the necessary resources for believers, for followers of Jesus to execute gospel ministry and mission, and that God has established certain roles in the church to prepare all believers for service to God. And when we know that we're nailing this, the fruit of, of, of this equipped portion of our vision is servanthood. It's evidenced when people move from being merely consumers who are here for themselves and rather are here to be active participants in ministry when they begin to pour out their lives so others would know Jesus. And Paul explains the result of such a mindset, right? When church leaders equip the flock and then the flock in turn uses what they've learned and put it into practice, it is for the expressed purpose in verse 12, for the building up 
of the body of Christ. I, I hope that sounds familiar to you. Right? What, what will result from the work of pastors who do what they have been called to do and, and, and what will result from people who do what they have been called to do and have been prepared appropriately? What is that result? The church is built. Simply put, spiritual maturity occurs. We become more like Christ as a result. And Paul puts it very plainly and clearly in verse 14 that we're no longer like ignorant children, right, who are tossed back and forth by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, right? We aren't being thrown around, Paul says, uh, by human cunning, uh, but by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We're not that, like that poor little tugboat that, that is, is subject to the wind and the waves, blowing it wherever the wind and the waves would will it to go. No, uh, we aren't like the ignorant ones who just buy into any message that sounds appealing to, to the ear or moves us and stirs us in, in our hearts and in, in our emotion. To put it bluntly, Paul could have easily have said, we're no longer easily duped. Right? We, we're no longer easily duped. Paul says, no, living in the truth and love, we grow up in Christ. We become mature. We become like Christ. There is a close relationship between equipping and building because you cannot just hand somebody a power drill and say, go build a skyscraper. No, you have to train them how to do it. And then they are free to participate in the building project. As we close our time, something worth consideration and a rather humbling suggestion is that perhaps we have our vision statement out of order according to this passage. That the word equip should actually precede the word build. Because according to this passage, we are not building people up in spiritual maturity only then to equip them to do ministry and send them, them out as if ministry is only for those who have matured in Christ, only for those who are ready for it. No, according to this passage, we are actually equipping followers of Jesus to do ministry, to send them out, which in turn, as a result, builds the church, builds them. This passage shows us the role that serving has in our spiritual maturation. That the greatest spiritual growth in the church occurs when people are exposed and trained and equipped by God's word and then put it into practice and service in ministry. That that service to God is not the ends, if you will, of someone who has already matured in Christ, but rather that service to God is the very means that God uses to grow us. And for that, we praise God for his awesome wisdom and his wonderful power. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many gifts to us that come in all shapes and sizes. We thank you, Lord, for the order of things, uh, that you are a God of order. And, and I would pray, Father, that as we come here as a body of believers, as called out ones, week in and week out, as we open up your word and, and, and seek to um, equip people by your word, uh, would they take it and use it, Father? Um, would it have an impact on their life, Father? I, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would move in our hearts in such a way that we would be, uh, having, having learned the truth of your word, be uh, spurred on to uh, action, Lord, and, and that it would not be one out of obligation. Uh, it, 
would not even be one out of need, Lord, but that we would, we would act in accordance to what you have already done for us. Lord, we praise you for Christ's sacrifice. And it's very easy to love someone who has poured their life out for us, Father. And so would our love for Christ increase as we wonder and marvel at what he has done for us? And would we then in turn pour out our lives for others as Christ did for us? And it's in your holy name I pray. Amen.